The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual by my colleague Ezra Klein, and we have brought in special guest Darlind uh, for a special episode of The Weeds. We are here uh, to talk about uh, some drastic events happening in uh, immigration policy over the weekend. Donald Trump issued an executive order which immediately threw uh, everyone into a state of, of chaos and confusion. Maybe Dara can start us off by just recapping what did this order, what did it say? Sure. So there are two major components to the order. There's a lot of stuff that is going to get worked out over the next few months. But immediately what the order did was it banned all refugees from arriving in the U.S. for 120 days with some small exceptions. For example, if they're persecuted religious minorities, they're supposed to be able to come. Uh, And it banned all immigrants, visa holders, refugees, et cetera, from seven majority Muslim countries. Those are Iraq, Iran, Libya, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen. And so anyone in either of those two circles uh, upon arriving in the U.S. was supposed to be sent back home. They weren't even supposed to be able to get on planes to the U.S. And so when, in fact, people were arriving in the U.S. because they had been scheduled to do so, uh, it caused massive panic as they were being detained at airports, being coerced into signing deportation papers and being, in many cases, prevented from seeing lawyers, uh, which – was both kind of a very dramatic demonstration of what the executive order was doing and also kind of just the tip of the iceberg because, of course, many people have been prevented from getting to the U.S. at all over the next three months in the case of the country bans and four months in the case of the refugee ban. Uh, Visas aren't even going to get processed. The fallout that this executive order has is just so much broader than what we saw over the weekend that it's just the start. So there are three different terms people have been using to refer to this. And I think it'd actually be useful to just distinguish between them because all of them contain a portion of truth. Yes. There is what it was originally called when Donald Trump first proposed it during the campaign, the Muslim ban. There is um, the refugee ban, which Mm -hmm. is a a term I've seen a lot of people used and have used myself. And then there's also an immigrant ban. And I would actually add the fourth because I I think that the way that Cable is describing it is a travel ban, which strikes me as massively unhelpful. (laughs) Yeah, that one I don't think it has that much truth. (laughs) I feel like that is Cable's traditional obsession just with things that happen at airports. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Great footage. But which parts of the ban – accord to which terms. Sure. So I understand the instinct to call it a Muslim ban because, again, as you said, it's something that he called for during the campaign. There's a strong temptation to point out the Islamophobic underpinnings, if you will, of this policy, which, as we now know, was written mostly by Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller in the White House rather than by, you know, counterterrorism officials. People I don't think know who Stephen Miller is. I think people know who Bannon is. But who's Stephen Miller? Miller is one of the I don't remember his his official title. He's one of the senior policy staff in the White House. He's also one of many White House staffers who was a former staffer for Jeff Sessions, who is you know now the attorney general nominee and who has been in Congress one of the strongest opponents of not only unauthorized but legal immigration. So just like with Steve Bannon, you can kind of see his intellectual influence in what President Trump just signed. You can see the Sessions interest in keeping people who are going to be a drain on government benefits, who are going to take American jobs from coming to the U.S. 
You then have so so to go back to mm-hmm. it, you have as you said, there's the temptation to call it the Muslim ban. And right. Let me let me ask you about that for a minute mm-hmm. because on the one hand, this is not what Donald Trump originally proposed, right. which is no Muslims can travel to or from the United States. But the way it is structured, I don't mean to be flip about this, but it, it's sort of like a not all Muslims ban. The way it is structured is you have seven Muslim majority countries mm-hmm. on which you have a full ban on immigration, but except for. Religious minorities, which is to say non-Muslims from these Muslim-majority countries. Well, so this is actually one of the interesting things that I and a bunch of other people had kind of assumed that the religious minorities clause in this order was just going to apply across the board. We have actually seen some evidence that as part of the extremely, you know, down-the-line draconian interpretation of this order that Syrian Christians are getting sent back, which actually, if you look at the text of the order, the country bans don't have a loophole, an explicit religious minorities loophole. It's just kind of a eh, case by case. And then the religious minorities loophole comes in on the refugee ban. It is theoretically possible that despite swearing up and down that this is going to protect Middle East Christians, President Trump has just signed an order that won't do that. But you're right. He has said explicitly, we're trying to protect Middle Eastern Christians. So right. on Friday, he went right. to the Christian exactly. Broadcasting Network and said. Exactly. But so, so, so the way this works, because – it's confusing because there's both a ban on refugees mm-hmm. and there's a ban on seven countries. Yes. One of the seven countries is Syria and also the largest sort of source of refugees in the news is Syria. Right. And there's also an explicit indefinite ban even after the 120-day window expires on letting in any refugees from Syria right. permanently. So. And Syria is also – one of the Middle Eastern countries with mm-hmm. the largest Christian population. Right. So these different things interact differently. But in principle, a Christian refugee from a hypothetical conflict in Lebanon could be let in under the minorities yes. loophole. But a Syrian Christian refugee couldn't because even though he would be a refugee and thus entitled to the loophole, he would also be Syrian right. and thus not entitled. That is what the text of the order says. And, you know, I think we're going to see over the next few weeks, especially as, you know, the kind of drama at airports, if if that calms down a little bit, we, we may start to see how this is playing out in practice on other fronts. But, you know, the, the flip side of, you know, when you called in a not all Muslims ban, I think that's very important to note. Most of the countries that have the biggest Muslim immigrant populations in the U.S., Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, that kind of thing are not restricted by this ban. There's a, a solid counterterrorism argument that maybe there should be a little bit more attention to countries that have more connections to terrorism. But many Muslim immigrants in the U.S. are not being affected right now. Those countries could be added later. But my real concern with calling it a Muslim ban is that what we've seen over the weekend is this is affecting real people's lives. And there's a lot of uncertainty about who can travel and where they should be able to travel to. And You know, I think that it's simultaneously really important to talk about, you know, the intellectual heritage of this and what President Trump may have been trying to do and to say there are people who this affects who live in the U.S. and it doesn't affect many. There is a lot I want to come back to right there around both intellectual heritage and what he was trying to do. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack. But before we move from here, I do want to talk a bit about there's a part of this refugee ban and then Mm -hmm. a part of it is an immigration ban. Mm -hmm. And can you just delineate those two? Sure. First of all, they're separated in the executive order because the immigration ban is, you know, specific to those seven countries and hypothetical countries that could be added in the future. But the refugee program is 
deliberately designed so that the U.S. is taking in people who are persecuted elsewhere. It is very different from other immigrant programs because it isn't supposed to care about what can you do for us. It's supposed to be about what we can do for you. And so there's been some attention, especially as the Syrian refugee crisis has kind of become the central refugee crisis around the world, to, well, we should at least make sure that terrorists aren't using this. There's a two-year screening process. It takes a very long time for someone to resettle in the U.S. But by cutting off refugees in particular for 120 days and, you know, then only allowing them from certain countries after that, the U.S. really is changing the way that it looks at this particular program that's supposed to be about persecution. The immigration ban on those seven countries is simultaneously much broader and a little bit narrower because it's broader in that it affects, until last night, green card holders. Um, It affects people who have been living in the U.S. on work visas, who are moving here on student visas, etc. But it's also, once those 90 days are over... In theory, those seven countries should be allowed back and people from those seven countries should be allowed back in. And the U.S. is going to be making decisions based on excluding countries, whereas with the refugee ban, it's going to specifically whitelist which countries can come in. So the way that those two work is very different. And it's entirely possible that after 90 days, the refugee ban will last and the immigration ban will kind of not. What is the point of this temporary nature here? So we can figure out what's going on. Right. <laughs> um, right. Which, of course, we it's amazing to... how closely it accords to that. Yeah. Um, this is where the executive order kind of punts. And when I said earlier that, you know, there are things that are going to be worked out over the next few months, this is the kind of thing we're looking at. Um, the executive order implies that by the time those 90 days are over, the U.S. government will have come up with a new and somehow foolproof strategy that asks everyone in, who's trying to come to the U.S., you know, Whether they can prove whether they're going to be a terrorist when they're here, they can prove they're going to be good for the national interest, that kind of thing, that like this new screening process will have been developed that all immigrants will then have to go through. That's kind of the purpose there. On the refugee front, those people are also going to be subjected to that. But there's also this presumption that we can't really trust any country (laughs) that is actually likely to send refugees um, because By doing this on a country-by-country basis, what the U.S. is saying is we will only accept refugees from countries where we can trust there are already safeguards in place. So it's basically mandating a certain level of stability. So the way that those two things are going to kind of come back online is different. One is going to be about what screening processes have we in the U.S. developed. The other is going to be about where can we as the U.S. assume that this government is simultaneously persecuting people enough that they can be refugees and is stable enough that we can trust they're screening out terrorists. It's worth sort of going back to the the Jeff Sessions intellectual heritage of some of this, right? Because clearly one strand at work here is Donald Trump had this idea as a primary candidate that there was a lot of Islamophobia in the Republican base. So he could make this outlandish let's ban all Muslims thing and it would work for him politically. Um, So he did that. And then it's kind of refined down to this category. But Sessions is a really like a a profound immigration skeptic in a way that it seems like a lot of Republican politicians have kind of played both sides of the fence on immigration for, for years or have tried to exploit it for some kind of political issue or are specifically targeting the undocumented population. But Sessions is like He's really obsessed with the summer travel visa program, has too many loopholes in it, or some of these guys on manager transfer visas aren't really managers. And it seems like he's just interested in 
kicking the tires of the whole system to just like find ways to keep people out. Yeah, I really think that can't be overstated. We are seeing the Republican Party forced to acknowledge that it can't play the we like legal immigrants, we don't like unauthorized immigrants card with this administration. This administration has shown a willingness to restrict legal immigration either in the name of terrorism or in the name of protecting American workers or in the name of protecting American culture and values. Um, And we're beginning to see that with this order. Sessions is often particularly skeptical of the refugee program, as are a lot of other conservatives, including Bannon, because, you know, they're concerned that refugees are taking too many government benefits. You know, as I mentioned, the purpose of letting refugees in is not supposed to be because they're going to make gajillions of dollars. But there's that kind of assumption that the only reason to let someone into the U.S. is if they're going to be good for the people who are already here. This is, I guess, going to be defunct, but we, we should talk about the the extension of this to green card holders, which seems like where they moved from something that people would have complained about, but that probably could have stuck into something that went too far for the system. So, I mean, let's be really basic. Like, what what's a green card? Anyone who's not a citizen of the U.S. can, under certain circumstances, be deported. But if you have legal permanent residency, which is what's called a green card, the government has accepted that you're going to live in the U.S. for, if you want to, the rest of your life, as long as you don't commit a serious crime. You know, most visas are temporary and have certain conditions attached. Being a legal permanent resident, you know, basically the process that you go through to tell the U.S., I want to stay here and have the U.S. say, that's fine. That's cool. So... Legal permanent residents do not have homes outside the U.S. in, you know, 99 out of 100 cases. Like they go so through the same uh, passport check line as citizens. Right. It, I, as, I assume that's correct as it far is. as I know. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so by keeping people who have green cards from coming back to the U.S. who like happened to be traveling abroad over this weekend, most people that offends them. Because if you ask someone who's an American, yes, some people are going to assume that it's American citizens. But – the knee-jerk reaction of, oh, well, if someone's lived here for 10 years and this is their home, then that's fine. The idea that it is acceptable and even a good idea to prevent people whose home is in the U.S. from coming back here makes sense if you define Americans as strictly American citizens, particularly native-born citizens, and just aren't particularly concerned with the quote-unquote inconvenience that happens for other people. <laughs> but, but in political terms, I mean, green card holders have co-workers and bosses and landlords and spouses and and all kinds of other like a lot of people work at Google have well, green just, cards just connections to the mainstream yeah. american society right they are fully integrated uh members they're not i mean you you see them all the time right, right? like in in your office or or your church or or wherever and it makes it a much broader circle of people are going to look around and say, oh, wait, this is somebody who I know than if you're talking about refugees. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to run the counterfactual too far here because I do think that the reason that a lot of attention got paid to green card holders over the weekend was because of what we found out about how this policy was developed, right? Um, Right. From what we know from reporting now, DHS, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, looked at the order after it had been signed on Friday night and said, we don't think this applies to green card holders. And the White House said, nope, yes, it does, Um, which is not usually how you run things. And then, of course, there were contradictory statements from members of the government as to whether or not it did. 
I think that that's a lot of the reason that we focused on this. And I think that some of the objections that we've seen from the science community, from the tech community, are not just about green card holders, but also about people who have high-skilled work visas and other people who are more integrated into the U.S. than refugees are. And so it's going to be interesting to see, after green card holders have been exempted, how much of that continues. I I don't want to also pull this too narrow. I I do want to say that I think a lot of the backlash, a lot of the anger comes from people who are just morally outraged the spirit of this executive order. I I agree with that, but I mean, I... No, I I, I hear what you're saying, but it's just, I just think that's an... I just don't want, as we... There are three things that happened here, it seems to me. (laughs) One is people hate what this stands for. This feels to them like a country... I don't want to say like a country they don't recognize because America has often done things like this. This is, as Dylan Matthews put it in an amazing piece this weekend... This is fully in line with the worst of American traditions. There's nothing unusual here. One, there's a group of people who really, really are offended by this. Two, there's folks for whom it went too far. And not only did it go too far morally, but it also went too far in a way that it will disrupt their business. It will disrupt their lives. It will disrupt their church, their neighborhood, whatever. And then the third, which I also think is not inconsiderable because you're seeing this as a place where a lot of Republicans are using it as their off-ramp, is that it was done incompetently. In addition to one, it's bad, and two, it goes too far. There's also three, it was managed in an insane way. The executive order itself is poorly written. They didn't do basic work, just give it a delayed start date. So people on a plane when it was signed, there's something that happened when they landed that was clear. Uh, It appears they didn't run it by the Office of Legal Counsel, or if they did, they did not get a serious vet on it. What is now being reported is that the Office of Legal Counsel did read it. They are not saying whether or not they said it was legal. Right. Sure. So <laughs> and this last part, and this goes to a line, Dari, you had about what Donald Trump might have been trying to do. This is an order that has been structured so poorly that in part its own failures have become its weaknesses. So it created an emergency stay over the weekend on the deportations for people currently here from a Brooklyn judge. I'd love to hear a bit about that because I was talking to some experienced lawyers who are just incredibly angry about this order. But the one thing they were happy about was they thought the order was so badly done, they'd be easier to challenge in court. Uh, That is absolutely. I cop to having uh, understated how vague this was. I was reading over it on Friday, and especially because the president has so much authority over refugees and because the U.S. has extremely broad authority to keep people from entering the U.S., even if they have valid visas. Once you have a valid visa, you can still be prevented from being admitted to the U.S., which is what we've seen uh, happen over the weekend. So I assumed that this was not going to be terribly challengeable. And to see not one but four federal judges on Saturday night immediately respond to challenges that had been brought with something bad has happened here and we need to stop this from being enforced until the government has its act together is really startling, especially for those of us who have been following the extent to which the judiciary defers to the executive on immigration, the extent to which they defer to the executive whenever the executive can pull a national security card. This has been a really interesting turn in the judiciary's relationship with the executive. And a lot of that has been because even in the court hearing in Brooklyn, the government didn't appear to be aware of how many people it was currently holding at airports. It didn't appear to be aware of all of the details of how this was being implemented. And that has, you know, it doesn't just have political consequences for giving Republicans an off ramp. It also has set a really strong tone for what I'm sure is going to be ongoing litigation about this order, because it's going to be much harder for the government to 
turn up in a hearing on the merits of the order in a month and say, well, this was very carefully crafted to comply with the Constitution when we now know that it wasn't carefully crafted at all. Jonathan uh, Bernstein, the political scientist turned Bloomberg columnist, he he has this sort of coinage that he likes to use about the, the presidential branch of government versus the executive branch. And by that, he means like the people who are not Senate confirmable, you know, who who work in the in the White House are, are the presidential branch. And and one of the things I think you tried to see here was people from the presidential branch do this without the input and buy-in from the like larger circle of executive branch stakeholders. And that led to some of the outcomes that Dar was talking about, right? I mean, it appeared that the people from the US Attorney's Office in the Eastern District who had to show up at court had not developed a legal argument to make, right, that they um, got a phone call and they had to show up, but they weren't prepared, which is a a distinction from – there's not, I think, a formal legal requirement that when you do something that you know is going to be controversial, you run it through Justice Department lawyers, you come up with this is what we are going to say if we are been into court, you send that memo out to the different offices, but that is the way the government – does things because if you show up at a federal judge's emergency hearing and you don't have answers to these kinds of questions, it certainly it creates an opening for the judge to to rule against you if they want to, right? And when you have – it seems like really a small – like a handful of people in the White House cooked this up without like running it by everybody, I guess because they didn't want it to leak or – Something. It seems like they have contradictory stories coming out today as to as to why they did it this way. But like Trump signed the order at a press conference with uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, who now is saying like, oh, I didn't even read it. Um, he signed it minutes after they swore Mattis in. Well, it was it's like a, a ceremonial. Yeah, thing. it's like just yeah. like a crazy. I, I mean, it looked to me like that was a moment where they were asserting dominance over Mattis. Right. Like swore and him over, in, yeah. then put – then like signed this order that he – basically nobody saw this. So I would not be surprised if he not even yet officially in his position didn't either. Then they handed the folder to him and it's like, you're in this now, buddy. And meanwhile, John Kelly, the secretary of Homeland Security, was apparently on a briefing call about the order when he saw on television President Trump signing it, um, which Why given that Kelly is – resigned. I – this is – it's – given that Madison Kelly are two of the people who – many of the Trump skeptics were most confident mm-hmm. in because they saw them as being – they were attracted to them by the, for the same reason that Trump was attracted to them, right? They have a reputation for being tough-talking generals. Yeah. And Trump likes that swagger. And the Trump skeptics were like, well, these are principled men. They will stand up to Trump when it's necessary. Uh, I think we've seen over the last week that this whole we're going to let the cabinet officials make policy is not what is happening. And it's going to be very interesting as a Trump White House question what people like Madison Kelly do in that environment. But I think I think the other thing about what Matt is saying about the presidential versus executive branches, there are also opportunities for low level opportunistic both benevolence and cruelty when you right. don't have policy coming down from the top in a way that's being clearly defined. And it is not unusual for Customs and Border Protection agents to be very aggressive in the way that they enforce the law. Uh, it is certainly you know, part of the reason why they, along with other immigration agents, have been you know, politically so supportive of President Trump. And 
some of what we saw over the weekend was what happens when people, you know, this is an agency that doesn't have a commissioner right now. It's commi- It has an acting commissioner, but the commissioner resigned on Thursday. There aren't many senior people at Homeland Security who have been confirmed. What happens when they get the text of an order from the president and are kind of told, do with this what you will? And kind of the stories we've heard of people not being allowed to see lawyers, of green card holders being asked if they love their country, a lot of ridiculous things that are theoretically within the government's power, but are still not something that from a policy or moral perspective, you would expect people would be trained to do. Well, and I, I think something we're going to have to see is to what extent are the presidents of the CBP and ICE unions like the real Homeland Security secretary here, right? These are people who Trump has a close relationship with, who we, we know he's consulted with throughout the campaign, who are very politically supportive of him and who have a means of communication to rank and file enforcement officers. John Kelly is a man who has a lot of respect on Capitol Hill, whose confirmation sailed through very easily, who, because he ran Southern Command as a, as a military officer, has a sort of policy connection to immigration enforcement issues, but does not have a personal relationship with the rank and file sort of officers like that and does not appear to have the personal confidence of Donald Trump, right? When Trump is thinking, well, should I sign this thing or not? It did not occur to him to say, I might call my Homeland Security secretary and see what he thinks about that. And, you know, that's going to be something that Kelly um, is going to have to think about, right? I mean, does he want to be the front man for an agency that he's not really running, which it's a problem in, in a lot of different cabinet departments. But we had a weekend of chaos, right, of court orders, of members of Congress showing up at airports, doing tweets about how, uh, you know, people were defying their orders, not listening to them. And he was nowhere. The administration didn't put him on the Sunday shows. He was not, as far as we know, on the phone with members of Congress. He wasn't reassuring Chuck Schumer, but he also wasn't reassuring John McCain. He was, I don't know where. Um, And then when they finally come out with the idea that they're going to reverse themselves on the green cards, his name is on that statement. But, you know, that's like what your cabinet secretaries are there for, right, is to be an intermediary when people have questions, when there's confusion. And he was not put out there either publicly or privately to do that because apparently he's not involved in any of the relevant decision making. So I do want to use this as a moment to step back. We are – it is strange to say this. We are 10 days into the Trump presidency. All the stuff that has happened in 10 days. And I think one thing that that we can now say confidently is a certain theory of Trump being moderation as president has been proven false. I think what a lot of people believed was going to happen and the choices of people like Mattis, Kelly were a big part of this argument, was that Trump has these maybe policy intuitions. He says a lot of things that contradict each other on the stump. He has some ideas. He had some policies. Clearly, he's not too attached to any of them. And this was the whole like take Trump seriously but not literally thing. And that what was going to happen was he would get into office and all of a sudden he would have the information the president has, the briefings the president has, the staff the president has, the cabinet secretaries the president has. And within this world where information was being structured for him in a much more professional way and where he felt the weight of the office and where he had advisors saying, oh, no, if you do that, all the airports will fall into chaos and everybody will hate you, that he would end up running a much more cautious and thoughtful and 
programmatically sound version of Trumpism. And what actually happened was the opposite. He came in, looked around at a bureaucracy that does not like him, is leaky, is potentially hostile to him. He brought in a couple of people who are like well-known and have their own public profiles, but clearly does not trust their loyalty to him. And so the thing that is in fact happening is that Trumpism is being defined and drawn out and made into programs by the folks who are frankly to his right. Immigration policy is being fleshed out by Jeff Sessions and sort of Sessions' world of acolytes. The refugee and immigration ban is being done very powerfully, it seems, by Steve Bannon among just a very small group of others. And so very far from Trump being moderated by the people around him in the White House, it appears that he's actually retreating back into the group of people who do hold the same opinions he does. But unlike the sort of convenience story told about Trump, which is that if you don't like one of his opinions, don't worry too much about it because he probably doesn't really hold it. This policy is being fleshed out by the people who do hold these opinions, who have thought about how to flesh it out. And so it doesn't end up in exactly the same form maybe as Trump initially suggested, but it is what becomes policy. And my sense is that part of, frankly, how you prove loyalty to Trump is that you show you actually agree with him. And I just I want to take a moment on this because I think it is profound. I think there was a theory a lot of people had about Trump and why he would be a better president than he was as a candidate. I think a lot of elite Republicans held this theory. I think it's the core of like the Peter Thielism around Trump. And it is just proving to be bullshit. I think it's I, I, I all of that is true. I think that there's also kind of a cousin to that theory, which was that, you know, Trump was never all that interested in policy. He was mostly interested in signaling. And therefore, the fact that he was sending, you know, the fact that he was playing to this Islamophobia and xenophobia in the base was, you know, he just liked the attention. There were other people in the room who were going to be making policy. And that logic only makes sense if you don't believe that anyone really in their heart believes that immigration is bad for the United States. I think we've because the Republican Party has been at doing such a balancing act over the last really decade where they understand some benefits of immigration. They also understand the benefit of looking tough on immigration and, you know, being tough on immigration, that people have kind of assumed that any language about being tough is just rhetoric. And in practice, Republicans really care about the policy equities at play here. This is what a policy that isn't about weighing equities, but, it, you know, the, the phrase America first is more apt when describing this order that came down over the weekend than it was in the prior week of the Trump presidency. This is what policy looks like when you are not considering weighing one thing against another, but are assuming that the lives of people who live in the United States, who are citizens of the United States, are so important that any potential harm to them is enough to be to be worth any harm to anyone in the rest of the world. And that's not something we're used to seeing really in a policy making sense at all and certainly not from the presidency. I think, you know, a useful way to understand this is to actually look at what different people were saying in the 80s and 90s. And one thing it's easy to forget is that the partisan politics of immigration were extremely different back then. Um, And not – it's true that the parties were less polarized overall then, but that's like not the reason why. Right. We had a a clip on our site of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush in a Republican Party primary debate basically arguing about like which of them was going to be more welcoming uh, to to immigrants. Um, 
And you had Democrats who were very tough. Uh, Bill Clinton in 1996, you know, runs ads about how many people he's deported. And the entire modern immigration enforcement regime dates from the 90s, from when Bill Clinton was president. There was Republicans who were supportive of the new, much tougher approach, but there were also a, a lot of Democrats. Donald Trump in the 80s and 90s was a Democrat. Um, and he was also, if you read Dylan Matthews' piece on his old books, very, very skeptical of immigration, which was not unusual for a Democrat at that time. Um, he was also very skeptical of trade, which was not only not unusual but was typical of a Democrat, right? And and if you think about – we all know this when we talk about Rust Belt voters who Donald Trump won over is that like there are a lot of people who voted for Democrats historically but who were skeptical of trade and immigration and who when they found a Republican who was skeptical of trade and immigration but maybe supportive of Social Security and Medicare were like, hey, I'm a Republican now. Um, but that is also Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump is not – like Paul Ryan is a guy who was – schooled in the Ronald Reagan ideological marinade and who has bobbed and weaved on immigration over the years trying to find a place that like works politically, works with the business community, things like that. But Trump, like many Americans, has a really firm view that like foreigners are bad. Um, and, the and that is the thing that has made him a Republican. Yeah. And the footnote is when he swung from the Democratic to Republican parties, he did so through Pat Buchanan's Reform Party in 2000. Mm -hmm. I want to say two things maybe on the more moral dimension of this. One is we were not good as a country on this refugee issue before. I think where the Obama administration stood on this, particularly around the hell that has been unleashed in Syria, is basically unconscionable. Um, at least I think they were not trying to not let anybody in. We're trying to figure out ways to make the, the policy a little bit more humane and couldn't because the politics of it are very tough. But I do not think we were in a good place on it before. But there is right now across the world a, a genuine global refugee crisis. We are seeing a huge number of refugees, particularly the outflow from Syria has been destabilizing both to the Middle East and to Europe, which is much more dangerous to us than actually resettling some refugees here, none of whom so far have ever tried to attack, have ever launched an attack on the United States of America. Um, and, and secondarily, just on an emotional level, this all came down on the weekend of the Holocaust Remembrance Day. And which, as Rince Priebus said, was a hard time for everyone. For those who did not catch this, they all lives matter. The Holocaust, they released a statement that didn't mention Jews. And then when asked about it, they said, well, a lot of people died in the Holocaust, which is true. But I'm going to come I, out and say as an American Jew, if they had done that and then not signed that order on Friday night, I would have been much more cool with it than the fact that they then turned around and turned a bunch of people away. Yeah, but I, just part of America's. The beginning of America's history. We now think of America as this World War II savior and it comes in and it helps liberate the camps. But before that, our history was shameful. And part of what was shameful about it was turning away boats of Jewish refugees who were then slaughtered by Nazis. And to sign this order over this weekend, putting aside all politics, it just it just breaks my heart. Like it just we are a worse country than we were a little while ago. And again, not because we were in such a good place three weeks ago. I don't think we were. I think we could have been a lot better than we were. We have literally moved from we are trying to figure out a way to make our policy more humane to we've decided our policy should be inhumane. Well, yeah, I, I 
also think it's worth considering the seven countries in that same oh, yeah. context. We need here. to talk about because those. the the cynicism of that list is mind blowing. Right. Like what you have here is a guy who committed himself rhetorically to a ban on all Muslim immigration. And now it's like he can't do that. Right. It's unconstitutional. Everybody in the Republican Party has come out against it. You just can't. He's not going to. You can't. But he wants he doesn't want to say, you know what? Like I shouldn't have said that. That's Can I add one quick thing here? We don't know how true this is. Rudy Giuliani on the Sunday show said what happened here is Donald Trump came to him said, came to him and said, how do I do a Muslim ban legally? And this is what we got. Right. Whether or not it's that. true, that's another thing that's going to look really bad in court when exactly. they're saying this is not discriminatory. But so what they've done is they've come up with like a list of countries that have a lot of Muslims in them, but that th- they can cite to lists that preexist the Trump administration. So that's how, for example, Iran ends up on the list, right? Because Iran is a state sponsor of terrorism, according to the State Department, uh, because of financial support that they give to Hezbollah, which, fair enough. But so what you have now is a exclusion of people who have – and it applies to dual citizens, right? So if you are a dual citizen of the UK and Iran or of Canada and Iran or of anywhere in Iran, you're barred entry uh, under this theory. You cannot renounce Iranian citizenship under law. So they have banned from entering the country just anybody who was born in Iran and left Iran at any point for any reason from ever coming into the United States, which includes like people who were tortured in Iranian jails because of their opposition activity, right? People who clearly pose no threat. People who I'm sure Stephen Miller does not think pose the at least the kind of threat that he is talking about, right? They are Muslims, which in some sense is a threat to, you know, the integrity of whatever America's Christian nature. But I think really they're just caught up in a cynical political sham here, right? Um, I saw an inquiry about this from the National Basketball Association, but there's there's two NBA players who are citizens of uh, the UK and Australia, but who were born in South Sudan. But South Sudan was not a country at the time that they were born. So they maybe have Sudanese citizenship and maybe if they go play a game in Toronto, can't come back to the United States. And The Trump administration has no legal guidance to answer this kind of question, and they're not even Muslims. That's the whole reason there were refugees from South Sudan, but they're casting this net for no real reason, right? There's not any kind of good faith. On their part, well, and they're also that there's, being, a, that there's a threat here. I mean, I, I want there's a lot I want to get back to on the moral thing, but I the thing about the UK dual citizenship is the UK government put out a statement on Sunday saying UK dual citizens are fine, which is either wrong on the face of the executive order or indicates that the UK government has made a special deal with the Trump administration. And we don't know that. And people who are dual citizens of the UK don't know that. And this is just it gets back to the carelessness of it, but it's also. The very first thing that I heard about this order when I started getting rumors on Tuesday, uh, and not to blow up any particular source, but the first thing I heard before I even knew what the specific list was, was it's not going to be a list of countries that's going to mobilize anyone to get really mad at first. Because 
no one is really going to say, oh, Somalia is totally safe. Obviously, people coming from Somalia are safe. It's a list of countries that don't kind of have the institutional presence. That's why they were being called out in these bills to begin with. It's not like Saudi Arabia, where America has a strong alliance. It's not like Pakistan, where the U.S. has kind of a frenemy thing going on. But it's created these kind of concentric circles of madness for people who aren't just coming from Somalia that the administration is either unwilling to clear up, doesn't understand, or has deliberately not cleared up. We have to wrap this in a second. So I want to let you say the moral piece. piece. Yeah. I mean, I want to defend the Obama administration a little bit. Um, For the last two years in particular, they understood that the way that U.S. policy was working was making it extremely hard for anyone who had touched the Syrian conflict to come to the U.S. And they did make an effort on that. And a lot of people, for the last year and a half of Obama, a lot of people were able to come. You know, the U.S. was going to admit 110,000 refugees in fiscal year 2017, which is huge compared to historical levels. Uh, Now that's going to be 50,000 because even after the 120-day ban is over, the U.S. is now going to be able to admit, you know, 20,000 more people over the next eight months. Uh, I was in New York over the weekend, which was terribly timed. um, But that's where my ancestors came in. I'm sure that that's where a lot of listeners' ancestors came in. I didn't get to go see the Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island because I was busy covering everything that had happened. Um, But the reason that the Holocaust thing is relevant to the U.S. right now is not just because it is a shameful chapter in U.S. history, but because after World War II, as Americans came to terms with the fact that they could have done more and didn't, they deliberately adopted this mantle of being the country that would welcome refugees. And for literally the entire time from World War II to now— Half of all refugees who have been resettled permanently in a third country have been in the United States. It's been an extremely important part of who we are. It's been the last bit of immigration policy that actually does reflect the pedestal on the Statue of Liberty as the rest of immigration policy has kind of moved beyond that. And to take that away, it's not – It's not clear whether this is going to be the year or next year is going to be the year that Canada overtakes the U.S. in terms of allowing refugees. But I think it's pretty inevitable at this point under this administration. And – This is going to permanently change the way that the U.S. thinks of itself, the way that the rest of the world thinks of the U.S. We have had a totally deserved mantle for the last 70 or so years that we gave up on Friday night. And if you haven't taken some time to think to yourself about what that means for you and your relationship to your country, I would urge you to do that. This has been a special episode of The Weeds. Uh, Thank you to Dara for joining us today, to our producers, Afim Shapiro and Isi Valdez for making this happen. We'll be back as normal uh, a little bit later this week.